The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Of all the great Christmas songs that have been written and that we have sung this season, uh, this is one of my favorites, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It always seems to be at the top of the list for me. And it's surprising because in many ways it's a lament. It doesn't have in it all of the joy and exuberance of many of the other Christmas songs. And of course, this is about a birth and largely it's about joy. Yet this song expresses a a deep longing, the deepest really. It embodies some of the values that are precious to us here. Authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability. This song, maybe more than any other, expresses a a realistic perspective of Christmas, devoid of happy greeting cards and candy canes and flashing lights and stuffed turkeys. This song, more than any other, is raw, it's emotional, it's real. The one who sings this song knows their situation the challenge of it and laments and cries out to Jesus come now in her article about the history of its composition Jennifer Woodruff Tate writes this in a world and sometimes even in a church that celebrates the days before Christmas as an endless obligation of organized exuberance these words remind us that as Christians We are to long for another country, one where the coming Messiah wipes the tears of the sorrowing and casts down the mighty from their thrones. We've tried to make it clear from the Word of God through this series that the nativity, this birth that we celebrate, is not the end of the narrative. There's so much more to come to bring about the final fulfillment of what Isaiah 7.14 says, what Matthew 1.23 says, that this is Emmanuel, God with us. That three-word phrase, that's our only hope for now and for eternity. And so let's read about the culmination of that in what is um, a somewhat unusual Christmas passage, Revelation 21, 1 through 8. This is the Apostle John writing the visions that he saw right at the end of the first century, the last of the Apostles. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, 
passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, faithless, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort it brings and the warnings it issues. Thank you for the blessing that it will be for us who know you to be with you forever, to have you with us. So, Father, I pray that you would pour your presence out in this room right now as we hear your word. I pray that you would do in this place what is impossible for us to do, that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would convince us of these truths, that we would be eager to respond to you. Father, that you would do a great thing in this place to encourage, to build up, to bring life these things we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, forgive me. I'm still dealing with a bit of a throat cold thing. How many people uh, dealing with something right now? And um, so if I'm drinking a little bit through this, you'll understand. Um, You know, the only hope that we have for now and for eternity is God with us. That's it. I hope you've been hearing that throughout these weeks that we've been looking at this theme. And um, as we think about that only hope, let's work through uh, this passage together. One of the things that he's planning on doing is renewing the creation. He's planning on renewing the creation and it needs renewing. Don't you think? It needs renewing. Uh, Things aren't really that good. Um, I'm not, um, I'm certainly not an environmentalist. Uh, Though I'm not an anti-environmentalist, you know what I'm saying? Um, I'm not a member of Greenpeace, but I do compost. All right, so so I I bear some responsibility and I have some awareness of what's going on in the environment. Uh, But no one can really deny, even if you're kind of anti-environmentalist, no one can really deny that we're hard on the earth. Human beings are hard on the earth. We're, We're consumers of the earth. And the earth needs renewing. And John here is relating to us really what amounts to the final vision of all of the visions that Jesus has given to him for the church to be encouraged and and blessed by these things. What's going to happen at the end of the age? And among those things is this renewing of creation. Here's what he says in verse 1 again. I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the old heaven, the first heaven, the first earth, they'd passed away. We had used them up. We were done with them. We're no longer able to sustain what God was doing in the world. The sea was no more. Now, most scholars would agree that this is not as it was in the beginning. Um, 
in the beginning, uh, there was God, and that's it. And the creation was, uh, the Latin word is from, it was ex nihilo. It was a creation from nothing. God spoke, and it was. And most scholars would agree that this is not creation ex nihilo. It's not creation from nothing, but it's a renovation, if you will. If you've ever renovated anything, that's what this is. You kind of tear out the old, and you rebuild and, and the sense here is that the creation of the new earth and the new heavens is really a recreation or a renovation of what is already existing. And it really is truly uh, beyond our comprehension to try and understand what that place is going to be like. I mean, I don't think we can really imagine what that's going to be like. And even John, you get very clear evidence that he was straining to find the words to describe the things that he was saying. And, and to a large extent, if you read all of the book of Revelation, you, you can tell he's, he's straining. He's, this looks kind of like this, and this looks like this. And that's why when we read the book of Revelation, we kind of, do you scratch your head a little bit when you're reading Revelation? You just go, I don't know what that is either. John, I don't know what you're describing here. I mean, so awesome all that he's seeing that words in any human language fail to really represent what he's seeing. It's so awesome. And maybe some of you in this room, you've seen some of the more amazing things that this world has to offer in terms of sights and the beauty of creation. Maybe some of you have gone to the Canadian Rockies or you've seen some of the great mountain ranges of the world. Maybe you've, maybe you've been like Cheryl and I got to this year, uh, see the Grand Canyon and, and we're Dave and Rhonda and we're just, we're flying over the Grand Canyon looking at it and literally your brain cannot take it in. It's impossible. The, the, the vastness of it and the beauty of it and the awesomeness of it. We go to Niagara Falls and we look and have you not ever stood on the, just at Niagara Falls and the edge there, or you've gone down to the rapids and, and you just look, the flow of water is so mesmerizing. Is it not? And, and you just go, I want to jump into that. Don't you, do you feel that too? No. Okay. So this is an awkward moment then. <laughs> But it's awesome. The volumes. And, and my understanding is that Niagara Falls is nothing compared to Victoria Falls in Africa. We think about some of the awesome sights of the world. How many of you have seen the Northern Lights? It's considered one of the seven wonders of the world, the Northern Lights. And, and the, the, the way they dance and the different colors and all of that. It's, it's awesome that we get to see that once in a while. But listen, all of that, no matter the most beautiful place on earth, how, however awesome it is. It's like looking into a landfill compared to what God is doing in eternity. Compared to what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. God is renewing the creation. And that alone should bless you. And it comes as a result of God with us. Renewing this creation. And, and you know it isn't just about the physical creation. But our hope is also rooted in a promise about receiving his people into that creation. See, we're going to live in this new heaven and new earth for all eternity. I mean, we often say, you know, I'm, when people die, they go to heaven. And that's kind of a loose term for eternity. But every indication in the scripture is that in eternity, 
we as the followers of Christ, we're going to actually live on the earth, on the new earth that God's going to create, that he's putting us back into the original state that he, he intended for us, a perfected earth as he originally created it. And that's where we're going to live for eternity, a place entirely cleansed of sin and its effects. And we're going to talk more about that when we talk about verse four. And all of this is only possible because of God's presence, because of God with us. Here's what uh, John wrote as he continues here, verses uh, two and three. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And Revelation gives us all these dimensions of the new Jerusalem and what it looks like. Pretty awesome in itself. But he says this about the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And it really has less to do with a physical city in the sense of how we think of a city. But this is really a metaphor in many respects for the people of God, the one people of God. Now, who are they? Anyone at any point in history who either believed the promise of a coming Messiah or once he came, believed in that Messiah whose name is Jesus. And so we would say those who are Old Testament saints before Jesus came, if they believed in the promise, not necessarily that they were Jewish, by the way, being an ethnic Jew didn't save you, never did. But having genuine faith in the promise... And obeying God and living for him was what saved people. And, and then post Jesus resurrection, then do you believe in the name? Do you trust in him for your salvation? And that's the one people of God, no matter what ethnic background you have. Do you believe in Jesus? Now notice what he writes. He continues on here. He sees this new Jerusalem coming down. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now that's God with us. Finally, ultimately, perfectly, eternally fulfilled. Amen. And that's what we're longing for. That's what the nativity is pointing toward. It's the culmination of everything, in fact. It's the culmination of all of the Old Testament prophecies. It's the culmination of the nativity, the birth of Christ, his life lived as a man, of his crucifixion, his resurrection. It's the culmination of all of it. All of that was to get to this climactic moment where we live forever with him. It is really a wedding. The bride of Christ. Us, the people of God, and the bridegroom, Christ himself, bound together for all eternity in perfect relationship. That's our hope for now and for eternity. Now also, God with us is, in order to get to that point, uh, reversing the curse. Reversing the curse. The curse is a reference to the after effects of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And we feel the effects of the curse as a result of oh, the earth groans under the weight of sin. We know that. We, we know that we, affect, we, we uh, experience the effects of the curse because of other people's sins. Sometimes people sin and that affects us. And then we feel the effects of the curse because we sin and we suffer the consequences 
of our own sin. And all of that is the effects of the curse in the world. And we could say this, that war or the spoiling of the environment, uh, warfare, the spoiling of the environment, all of these things, these two things, those are the effects of sin in the world. We could also bring it down pretty personally and say that, you know, the rotten vegetables in the drawer in your refrigerator and the, the cold virus that you're dealing with right now are also the effects of the curse in the world. None of these things are things that God intended for us. And the ultimate curse then is death. And this is where John's going to go in a few moments, but, but death is the ultimate effect of the curse. And I've said at many funerals that I have led in order to help us understand our grief and why we go through that. And even to say that that grief is, is important and valid is that God, God never actually created human beings to die. We're not actually fashioned for that. That's why there's so much fear going into it. It's, it's a fear of the unknown. What's it going to be like? When I die, if you've never thought about that, then you would be unusual. We're not fashioned for the separation that happens because of death. That when when we're the one left behind, um, the the separate and our loved ones not with me anymore. God never actually created us to even be able to cope with that. We were designed to be in a perfect environment, untainted by sin, always in perfect relationship with each other and with our God. But we spoiled that. And as a result of spoiling that, curse, a curse came upon the world. Now, the ultimate curse is physical death. That's what I'm talking about right here. But then also something that the scriptures call second death. This is also a problem for us. Second death is, is eternal separation now from our God. That once we pass through first death, physical death, that then we face the reality if we did not trust Christ in this life, then we're going to face second death, all of eternity separated from our God. Now the critical event, because what we're talking about right now is the reversing of that curse. How many people would agree right here? We want that curse reversed. Yeah, we want that curse reversed. And re- the, the, the way that God did this was through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A Christ came, lived a perfect life. Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. He was resurrected to new life. That's the critical event. In which God declared that the curse would be reversed. In fact, in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, this is. After Adam and Eve have sinned and God is now meeting with them and he places a curse on Adam and there's a curse on Eve as a result of sin. And then he talks to the serpent, a representative of the devil, and he says he places a curse on him. And then he says this in Genesis 3.15. This is what's called, uh, theologians call this the Protevangelium. It's, it's the first mention of the gospel. This is the thing that Adam and Eve and their children would have put their hope in. And and this is what God said to him. He he says to Satan, um, he shall bruise your head. And he's speaking of the seed of of Eve. Someday a a son is going to be born through Eve's line. And that son is going to bruise your head. And and he admits to the devil, you're going to bruise his heel. In other words, you're going to hurt him. 
you're going to clip him on the heel. But he's going to crush your head. He's going to take you out. And that's that's the gospel, the first mention of the gospel. In which God declares that the curse is going to be reversed. And as a result, we have this hope. We read here, look at verse 4. He's going to wipe away. How many people are just big fans of this verse? (laughs) He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. No more funerals. Amen. No more funerals. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I mean, I mean how many of us would just sit here today and just go like, I, I'm done with pain. If I didn't have to cry again, that'd be okay. I don't want to shed another tear. I don't want to feel the ache in my heart. I don't want to go through any more brokenness, any more heartache. I'm pretty much speaking for everybody, right? I mean, that's what's in front of us. That's the hope that he's offering right here. But until the day, until the day when God brings it all to a conclusion, it isn't like that. We still deal with all of these things, with tears, with death, with mourning, with pain, all of it. And Christmas doesn't help. I mean, for a lot of people, this season right now isn't all joyous and celebration and happiness and fun. There's a ridiculous amount of pain and sorrow that gets revisited every year on this date because some loved one who passed in years gone by, could be last year, could be five years ago, could be 10, could be 20, and you still realize they're not there for Christmas dinner. There's so much loneliness, so much heartache, that comes with this day. That the losses are just accentuated at Christmas. I want to illustrate this with one person's story. Many of you will know the names uh, Rick and Kay Warren. Uh, Rick Warren's a, among the most well-known evangelical pastors of our era a pastor at Saddleback Church in Southern California and the author of The Purpose Driven Life and Purpose Driven Church. Rick and Kay's um, 27-year-old son, Matthew, struggled his entire life with crushing depression. They really tried everything to try and help their son, but ultimately, Matthew, in a state of deep depression, took his own life in June of last year, 2013. And so they went through their first Christmas last year. This, this will be their second Christmas without their son. They have two other adult children. But Kay wrote this article. I, I thought it'd be good for you to hear this so that we can enter in as a community of faith into the pain of others. That often happens during this year, this time of year. 
Kay Warren writes, Christmas 2013 was our family's first without our son Matthew. I could barely breathe. I stayed away from the grocery store and the mall, fearing I couldn't hold it together. The internet became my friend as I shopped late at night without sentimental mall music, stirring up memories of Christmas's past when all three of my children were alive. But every day, the Christmas cards arrived. When I opened the first batch of cards, shock washed over me. Photos of beautiful, happy, intact families cascaded into my kitchen table. Most were accompanied by greeting, a greeting wishing me a joyous Christmas. Some had a signature in the message, hope you have a great Christmas. Others included a standard family newsletter listing the accomplishments, vacations, and delightful family moments that had filled the year. I grew astonished then angry as I realized that none of the cards mentioned that our precious Matthew had died violently six months earlier, leaving us definitely not having a joyous Christmas. She goes on to wrestle with that whole notion about those cards. She eventually let Rick open most of them. And she just offers this as a suggestion. To consider sending a plain card to greeting, grieving families. Tell them in a few words that you are aware of how painful Christmas can be and that you're praying for them. In other words, not whitewashing it, not glossing it over. It's not all lights and joy. I think that we can acknowledge the pain without neglecting the hope. Do you believe that? Isn't that what the hymn that we're singing here, O Come, O Come, isn't it? what it's doing. We can acknowledge the pain. We can long for him to come. We can say we want it to all end without neglecting the hope. She said, some days you think you're doing well until something triggers a wave of emotion and they make you wonder if you'll ever feel like yourself again. There are better days, even good days. And then after a couple of good days, a tidal wave of sadness can knock you to the ground. And I think that up and down thing is characteristic of almost everything in the Christian life, don't you think? Some good days, some bad days. Sometimes I'm on top of it, and sometimes those days last for weeks and months. Riding a wave in the deep pit of the valley. And that describes so often the Christian life. She said, and she described her grief as a deep sobbing. A deep, painful period of time for her. And she said, by and large, Americans, I'll add Canadians there, are uncomfortable with such raw emotion. It's not really us. She says, in traditional cultures around the world, the louder the mourning, the greater the love shown for the deceased. We might counter that that's not the way Westerners handle grief. And you're right, of course. But acknowledging this leaves me wondering, what are we supposed to do with our feelings when the people we love end their lives violently? How are we to feel when someone we love is murdered, when those dearest to us are ripped from our arms through an accident or an illness? Are we comfortable with hard grieving at first, but less so when the grief doesn't stop after a few weeks, months, or years? Some are hardened by grief. They lose their ability to share in others' happiness, but that's not where I'm headed. I'm doing my best to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Since Matthew's death, I've attended the weddings of friends, baby showers, graduation parties, birthday parties, most of them, she says, because life goes on and it's not about me. At the same time, it's been less than two years since our son took his life. 
And there are still moments when the happiness of others is a piercing reminder of what we have lost. Meanwhile, I'm grateful for our family and friends who keep walking with us on the path of grief. Here at Harvest, we would call that uncommon community. We're better together. We need each other. It's one of the gifts that God has given to us. It's the gift of one another in community. Amen? Kay writes, There are those who enter fully into our tears when we need to cry, who make us laugh at ourselves and at life, who gently inspire us to keep seeking beauty from the ashes, who point us with their lives more than their words to our eternal hope and home. It may seem counterintuitive, but it's possible to be in deep grief and yet experience the joy of the Lord. Well said. In fact, it is the Lord's joy that enables me to keep choosing to engage life and ministry even as I live with a broken heart. And I'm praying for all who mourn today for any cause. May we find in the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ the fulfillment of the words that Zechariah prophesied long ago. This is uh, Luke 1, 78 and 79. Though the Through the heartfelt mercies of our God, God's sunrise will break in upon us, shining on those in darkness, those sitting in the shadow of death, then showing us the way one foot at a time down the path of peace. God's reversing the curse, but the curse is still upon us. And whatever your brand of pain of loss, of sorrow is, whatever the brokenness that's in your life right now, you need to hear that God is reversing the curse. That he's pointing you, as Kay Warren wrote, to an eternal hope and home. He's pointing you to that. And that is our only hope. Then along the way, We also find this, that Emmanuel, God with us, is reaffirming his love for us. And some of you, that's the message you need to hear today again. And this is really the second half of reversing the curse. The first half we just looked at is we got to get rid of the sorrow, rid of the pain, rid of the brokenness. Let's get rid of all of that. But then what goes in its place? That's the love of God. That's what he offers to us. His love is expressed in a way that addresses the greatest needs that we have. And take a look at this, and you can jot these down first. Um, I have no fear uh, because Jesus keeps his word. A perfect love, we know from the scriptures, casts out fear. And the love of God chases the fear from our lives. I have no fear because Jesus keeps his word. Look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Nothing says I love you like me keeping my word. I told you I would do this and I'm going to do it. I I have integrity. I'm going to fulfill my promises to you. I'm going to keep my word. All of those things, that's, that's, like, that's like shouting out with a megaphone, I love you. It's covenant faithfulness. It's what God has demonstrated to us over and over and over through, through, through all of history. Though we have been unfaithful as a people, God remained faithful. And that was his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness to us. 
that I have no fear. Doesn't matter what comes against me, I have no fear. My God loves me and he's keeping his word. Amen? It's awesome. And then this, I have no guilt because Jesus paid the price. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning of the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I was under the curse of death because of my own sin. But that guilt is gone and God has given me his very life because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for me. And I, in faith, responded to that. So I have life. I have no more guilt. The sins that I have committed, the sins that I uh, am committing, the sins that I have yet to commit, and there will be some. All of those are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ, and I am justified, declared to be perfect and righteous in his sight because of what he did, not because of what I've done. So I have no more guilt. And that's the love of Christ giving. The Father loved us, gave us his Son. He's reaffirming his love as God with us, as Emmanuel. And and then this, I have no shame because Jesus calls me his own. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, that's you and me, those who believe. You'll have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. I'm not cast out any longer. I'm not separated from him any longer. I'm in his family. I don't have the shame attached to me of of being orphaned in this world, of having nowhere to belong and and no one who, who, who would declare their love for me and accept me as their own. That's a shameful place for anyone to be. And and that's not me anymore. I, I belong to him. I'm a son of the king. I belong to his family. I have a home that I'm heading toward. I have no shame. Jesus calls me his own, reaffirming his love for me. Fear, guilt, shame, all erased. By the love of Jesus Christ, he loves you. He's shown you that love, demonstrated to you in sending his son for you. And some of you need to accept that love. Some of you have never received it. You haven't experienced it in any way. Maybe your first time here, and it's the first time you're hearing this kind of message And this is exactly where you're at. And you need to hear this today. That God loves you. And he wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to erase your fear, your guilt, and your shame. And to make you his own. And then I need to speak to the believers for a second and just say to you. The the reality is we already know we're loved by God. But the problem with us as believers sometimes is that we can still run to find love in other places. Rather than resting in what God has provided for us, we continue to pursue other lovers, to put it that way, whatever it might be. 
whatever particular sin issue you have going on in your life, whatever particular addiction, whatever thing grips your heart, you're saying, God is not sufficient for these things. His blessings are not enough for me. His love is not sufficient. Therefore, I'm going after this thing because this makes me feel good. That's not a great place to be as a follower of Jesus Christ when he offers us such abundance. And for some here, it needs to be a turning, a repenting of going to all the wrong places and all the wrong ways to find that love. It should be enough for all of us that Jesus loves us and that our hope is grounded in that love and in nothing else. And then finally this. How many of you were thinking that I should have stopped reading after verse 7 and just preached those verses? And the challenge I have is that verse 8 really belongs with this section. And I did consider it. And in my Bible, I actually put a line at the end of verse 7, thinking I might end here. And then feeling like I would miss out on saying that God with us is also restating the peril in which many still find themselves. Verse 8. He speaks here of the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. And then he describes their fate. Um, The lake of fire, the second death, eternal separation from God. Now, unusual Christmas passage, I understand. But we're completing this thought about God with us. And so it's, it's critical that we, that we hear this. That this means eternal separation from all of the goodness that God would provide to us. And the words that we're reading here, as harsh as they are, are coming from the lips of Jesus himself. These words, John tells us, are coming from the one who's seated on the throne. This is Jesus speaking. And so when you have this image, this Christmas image of this little baby in a manger, and we're all ooing and aahing over the awesomeness of the incarnation of of God coming into our world, and it is special. Remember that this baby would grow up to speak these words. That it isn't always just Jesus meek and mild. That he also comes with a sword. This is Jesus talking. Issuing a warning to those who have not yet given their life to Jesus Christ. He's calling out those who have not yet repented of their sins. And and the list is not comprehensive, it's representative. But I see a couple of words there, despite that I've never murdered anybody. I don't even think I've hated anybody enough to want them dead. I don't think I'm guilty of that one. But I can look at a lot of the other things on the list, and I can certainly see that I could be guilty of those things. And when I see words like faithless, How many people in this room have ever been without faith? It's like all of us, right? When I I see liar there, 
We deceive in so many ways. If it isn't an outright lie that came out of our mouth at, at some time about something, then, then we use deceit and we manipulate situations and it's all lying. And I just realized that the list really does encompass the entire human race. And so we all stand warned here. It's, it's calling out people who have not yet repented of their sins. And if you've repented of your sins and you genuinely have faith in Christ and you're following him, you have the forgiveness of your sins, then just recognize that all that's on this list, all that's particular to your list has been taken on Christ. He took your sins upon himself and they are expunged from your record. That's if you're a follower of Christ. But if you're sitting here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, just understand this, that you still have your sins. You're still in your sin. And you're under condemnation. You're in peril. See, the only offense that really keeps you from God, all of these sins don't keep you from God. The sin that keeps you from God and puts you in peril is the refusal to believe what he says about these things. To ask him for forgiveness and to pledge your life to follow him. It really is a refusal to receive the abundance of what he's promising. He's, he's promising such awesome things. I mean, think about what you're rejecting if you're here today. If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, think about what you're rejecting. You're rejecting the new heavens and the new earth. You're rejecting the reality that you get to live in the new heavens and the new earth with him. You're rejecting... This reversing of the curse, the eliminating of the sorrow and the pain and the heartache. You're rejecting the love that he's offering to you. There's so much. And the sad reality is that many, too many are reticent to even sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because they're not ready for him to come. Some of you can't sing this song. Some of you shouldn't sing this song. Because you can only sing these words if you believe that Jesus' return will make things better for you. And for some in this room, if Jesus was to return today, it would not be better for you. It'll be worse. However bad life might be right now with sorrow and brokenness and heartache. No matter how painful life is right now, you can't even imagine what it would be like for all eternity without Christ. If you don't have this hope, then you're in peril of the second death. And this morning, Jesus is offering you the awesome gift of himself. I would just pray that this Christmas would be the one where you would surrender your life fully to Jesus Christ. That you wouldn't hold back any longer. That you would receive the one hope, the only hope that anyone has for now and for eternity. The hope of God with us. The hope of, of listen, make it personal, the hope of God with you. And we're going to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel again. It's, 
Again, it's a lament. It's not yet here. We're singing it with a longing heart, waiting, but hoping. We sing it hopefully, knowing he will come for us and fulfill all of his promises. We're going to sing it uh, together as our closing prayer today. All right? Let's stand and worship our God. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.